Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have uh, Dr. Mark Jurgensmeyer, and we're discussing uh, what I called on Twitter uh, the God and Violence trilogy. So we're discussing terror in the mind of God, God at war, when God stops fighting. And then also, uh, Professor Jurgensmeyer was quick to point out this is actually a quadrilogy. Um, there's also uh, the book Global Rebellion, which I think was is actually the first one. Um, but uh, the reason that I, I start on terror in the mind of God is it is probably one of the most influential books. So I think uh, for somebody like me that uh, went to graduate school for the study of religion and the study of uh, politics, um, that was the most formative book that I had read. And when, as most of you kind of know my backstory, when I transitioned out of that and into computer security, it was one of the few books that I kept and kept up with. Um, and last year, Professor Jurgensmeyer published God at War and now When God Stops Fighting. Uh, so that's what the conversation is going to be about today. So please welcome uh, my guest, uh, Professor Jurgensmeyer. How's it going? Oh, it's going just great. Thank you so much for inviting me. I look forward to the conversation. Of course, of course. Um, I want to maybe start off with a very sort of basic question and almost kind of like an origins question. But uh, when it comes to your interest in the intersection of religion and violence, what was the starting point? Was it was it just a pure academic interest or you were sort of observing world events? What is, you know, that seed? When did it get created? When did it get planted, so to speak? No, it's, perfect. it's a perfectly good question because nobody's born a terrorism expert. You know, I see sometimes I see myself on TV and it says terrorism expert under my name. And I say, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, uh, because I've always been interested in religion and politics. Uh, I grew up in a family that was very religious, but my father was also a local politician. And then I went to seminary and studied religion. And then I went to international affairs and then political science at Berkeley. And so religion and politics is what I've studied uh, in most cases in India, because uh, right after graduate school, I went to India for a couple of years, fell in love with it and have been going back to India on a regular basis. And most of my earlier works have been about India, religion and politics in, in new religious movements. My dissertation was on a religion of untouchables, which was also a political movement. Uh, and I also wrote a book on Gandhi. Uh, I worked with Gandhians, and uh, I'm a pacifist. And so you're saying, how did a Gandhian pacifist <laughs> get interested in religious violence? Well, that's exactly the kind of person who does, because it, it's such, it seems such an anomaly uh, to what is proper about human experience to suddenly see the world charged uh, with, in, with a kind of almost cosmic battle between good and evil uh, that then allows one to participate in, in a kind of destructive way that one never would in normal society and, and certainly wouldn't in the normal uh, kind of dictates of, of, of religion. So, I mean, it's easy to understand why bad people do bad things. It's harder to understand why good people do bad things. People who otherwise are on a kind of religious trajectory or see the world in, in in, in religious terms that ultimately lead towards peace, why would they do such hideous things uh, in, in relationship with religion? I always said in the name of religion, but it's not what I found. This is not, not, not that simple. <laughs> uh, 
it's not that religion drives people, uh, you know, because I use the term religious violence. It doesn't mean religion causes violence. I mean, you can talk about religious music. You don't think religion causes music. It just means it's associated with it in some way. So how did this happen? Well, as I said, I, I lived in India for a period of time, and the area of India that's kind of my home is the Punjab, uh, northern India, where Sikhs live. I taught there at Punjab University. And then in the 1980s, when this horrible spiral of violence began with between young Sikh men and the Indian government, uh, just, a, 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 just a hideous confrontation that led to the deaths of so many young Sikhs uh, in, in an all-out kind of slaughter by the, by the militant police in the Punjab and, and also by acts of terrorism by the, by the Sikh activists, you know, kidnapping people and, and, and stopping buses that were trapped, burning people alive, hijacking planes, blowing planes up, uh, like the horrible uh, act on Air India, a plane leaving Canada heading for Delhi. Uh, and was likely a, an act of violence related to this this movement in the 1980s, and and I wanted to know why. I knew a lot about the Punjab. I knew a lot about Jat Sikhs and how they depended on agriculture, and many of them felt felt somewhat marginalized by India's economic policies. But this had to be something else. It had to be something more. Uh, so I went back to India actually after the the killing of Sanjanal Singh Binrali, who was the leader of the movement in 1984 in something called Indira Gandhi calls Operation Blue Star. And they attacked the, where he was sequent, sequented in the, uh, in the Golden Temple. And, and in doing so, destroyed much of the parts of the Golden Temple, the Apaltak uh, building adjacent to the, this beautiful gold sheath temple in, in the midst of a, of a sacred pond. But a thousand Pilgrims were also killed in that act, and Sikhs all over the world were incensed. And then later that year, her own bodyguards, who were Sikhs, and who had not been militants before, uh, but they were so angered by this, they turned on her and, and, and riddled her full of bullets, and she lay dying uh, on, in the lovely garden between her home and, the, and her office. And then thousands of Sikhs were killed in reprisal, and the movement continued until the 1990s. So how did this happen? And, and I went there to try to understand what what the dynamics of this were, to try to get inside the minds, the mindset of people who took on this battle. And, and what I found was a fascinating thing, an imagined war, a great battle, uh, in which to a large extent the secular state was the enemy, and not other Hindus, not other other Sikhs or, not, or Hindus or Muslims or Christians, but, but the secular state saw it imperiled their sense of nationhood, their sense of identity, their kamiyat in, in Punjabi or Hindi terms, their community nationhood, <laughs> trying to find a way to translate that, that phrase. Um, it, had a, uh, it was that sense that their, their very existential being as a community was under threat. And so these kind of struggles, these kind of imagined wars, these, I call them cosmic wars, because they're greater than mortal wars, they're on a metaphysical level, they're, they are, are really battles, existential battles over one's very existence, and, and not just oneself, but one's community, and one's culture, one's faith, uh, 
And so they saw all of that under peril or imagined it under peril uh, because these wars are like all wars to some extent imagined wars. We, we are kind of wrapped up into these great notions of battle. And then for a time that just kind of takes over everything and, and justifies everything. And uh, those who participated don't feel that they are criminals any more than soldiers in a, in a righteous war feel that they are doing something evil, quite the opposite. They think they're battling for good. So the same thing can be said by these sick at, about these sick at activists. That was the first study. And then I took this project on the road. I began to looking at other uh, instances, uh, and other parts like the Middle East, of Muslim activists in Sri Lanka for Buddhist activists and discovered in every religious traditions. And of course, we've seen this increasingly. And then with Christian militia, even at that time, there were instances of the Christian militia, but in the recent years, uh, combined with politics and then kind of the insurrection of January 6th, you saw a lot of symbols of religiosity and the feeling that this was not just an ordinary battle, a mortal battle. This was a cosmic war. It was a fight, a battle for the soul of America. Uh, uh, and of course, they imagined this to be a, a white, heterosexual, evangelical Protestant <laughs> male-oriented uh, America, which never really existed in, in that way, but in, in the imagination of those people who, were, who felt aggrieved, uh, that this was what was being lost, and this is what needed to be fought for. So that was the beginning, and in some ways it still is, uh, the, my search to try to understand why these events are happening, uh, what religion has to do with it, and why are they happening now at this particular moment of late modernity and the rise of globalization? And of course, the very fact that this is during the rise of globalization when nationalism is under siege everywhere is a clue to that answer. And that was part of that was part of the first book on this project on religious nationalism, uh, called The New Cold War, uh, and then reissued in a different title. Uh, Global more recently, and I updated it, uh, actually rewrote the whole book uh, on, on global rebellion. Uh, and then the, one focusing specifically on instances of religious violence in every religious tradition, and that's terror in the mind of God, the global rise of religious violence. And then more recently, followed by a book focusing on that idea of cosmic war, the idea of war in general, and what religion has to do with it, in a book called God and War, and then just a few weeks ago, uh, publication of the latest book, "When God Stops Fighting," the result of a five-year project that I've been engaged in uh, with support by uh, a, a Swedish foundation associated with Uppsala University uh, to try to um, to look closely at three cases: ISIS, um, the most recent case of a movement that has kind of come to an end. Uh, although just two weeks ago, uh, they managed to attack a prison in eastern Syria and liberate 200 people. And of course, just today, um, uh, I, I'm talking probably before this is airing, and <laughs> you may have the time all, all, I should probably say recently, <laughs> although it's today as we record this, uh, President Biden announced that the killing of al-Qurashi, the leader of ISIS who replaced al-Baghdadi, uh, in an attack in, in Western Syria near Idlib uh, 
so ice is still very much alive, but yet it's not alive in the same way. It doesn't control vast swaths of territory. So to try to understand how that changed and how that changed from the inside, that is, in all these cases, I go and talk with people go and talk with people who were supporters of the movement, go and have gone and talk with people who are actually militants in ISIS and now in prison uh, and to try to get their understanding of what happened uh, and what's going to happen now. Then many of the fringe people have fallen away. Many of the true believers are still true believers, but they're realistic enough that know that, well, right now the movement's not thriving the same way it was before. So they're going to, bide their time and wait until the movement rises again, which it might. Uh, you know, we may not be rid of ISIS. So uh, the second movement I looked at was Khalistan, the movement I began my whole project with, this movement in Punjab of young, young Sikh activists. And, and now after, after some 30 years, what's, how, how do people who are involved in the movement look back on it? And how, how did it come to an end and how things changed is a very interesting story. And I was able to talk with some of the people I would, couldn't imagine talking with 30 years ago, leaders of the movement who were fugitives from the law. And, and now they're managed to come back and they've gone through whatever legal proceedings the Indian government had against them. And now they're living in a farmhouse in, in, near the town of Patala. In one case, a guy by the name of Zafarwal. And, and others are, are comfortably living in, in suburbs in Chandigarh. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, and yet they still have a, a sense of the righteousness of the cause, that they were glad they participated, even though to me, in many ways, it seems like it was a tragic encounter. But how did it end? Uh, I talked with a, 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 the policeman who is regarded as the, you know, the father of, of anti-terrorism, counter-terrorism in India, uh, who, who claimed that he did it. It was because of the strong militant measures of putting down the movement. And there's something to that. But when talking with people in the movement, I discovered it was already really destroyed from within. They lost the confidence of the villagers. There was infighting, their factionalism. And in almost all of these movements, it, it's really they last only so long. I mean, you can last only so long with the kind of heady notion that you're part of some great visionary battle uh, before things begin to decay. And you doubt the leadership and the, you see the leaders as being self-serving and, and corrupt and you get involved in petty disputes and uh, the movement begins to unravel and then the villagers who had supported you no longer support you. And the third movement I looked at was the moral movement in the Philippines. In some ways, the most successful of transition because they have actually succeeded in creating a, an autonomous state uh, of Bangsamoro in Mindanao. Um, the very people I talked with uh, over the years in doing this project now have become leaders of this new state, which is really quite impressive uh, that they were able to make this transition. They were quite militant. You know, it was as, as militant a movement as, as any other uh, in terms of carrying out acts of violence and. and uh, attacks on the on the Philippine government, but now in the transition, they've they've uh, accepted the, that there is another way of of achieving their goals. So, so each of these movements have ended in a different way, uh, which was useful. Although there are some commonalities that thread throughout all of them. That is the eternal eternal decay within the movement, dissension. Uh, but perhaps the most important, at least from the Philippine experience, is hope. 
the sense that there is an alternative. There's, there are other ways of doing it. There are other ways of achieving the objectives. Uh, and this is where the governments can play a very important role rather than simply trying to destroy these movements or fighting fire with fire, the way a lot of counter-terrorists put it. If they saw these movements as people who really do want a different life, or they do want uh, a different world. And, and even though the rhetoric sometimes may be strident, their actions are very uh, destructive, yet they do have aims and goals that can be dealt with and can be synthesized into some kind of alternative that doesn't involve violence and for which the participants can find a new life and a new future. So that's what the books have been about. And I'm willing to pick up any of these threads you would like and continue the conversation. So something that that stood out to me was the idea of religion as, as you know, is practiced at the temple, at the masjid, or whatever, uh, versus the idea of religious religiousosity. And the reason I, I, I want to pick up that thread is that something in one of your um, presentations, you had mentioned Timothy McVeigh, and uh, and this is just a, obviously there's going to be a lot more examples, but with Timothy McVeigh, it struck me that he he's not a very religious man in a traditional sense. He's who, know, who's that? Timothy McVeigh. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's. Well, you know, well, none of these people are. I mean, you know, Osama bin Laden is. is he, he delivered fatwas, but the guy had no religious credentials whatsoever. I mean, he, he was trained in in business. He claimed he was an engineer. He wasn't. His family was in engineering, mm-hmm. uh, but he had no religious credentials at all. His number two man, Zawari, uh, was a medical doctor. Uh, leader of Hamas uh, was a medical doctor. Now it's true there was Sheikh. Uh, Yassin, who is the leader of Hamas, the titular leader of Hamas, but all of the other people had no real religious credentials. Uh, so often these movements are not, they're not led by the clergy uh, and, and people with, who are kind of um, dominated by religion, <laughs> by people for whom religion is a uh, an attribute of, of a movement. Uh, so it, it's, it's more complicated than, than that. And it also feeds into that, what I've said earlier about these not being movements that are caused by religion. Uh, it, I wrote a paper once on, is religion the problem? And, and my answer was, well, no, it's not the problem, but it's problematic. That is, <laughs> There are all kinds of other social and political things that happen. In the case of ISIS, for example, clearly the grievances of Sunni Arabs feeling left out of, of uh, the political life in both Syria and, and Iraq, uh, where Shia governments are in control. Alawites in Syria are kind of Shia. And then the Shia in, um, in Iraq are very much in control. And so the Sunni Arabs feel that they're really second-class citizens. They're left out. And so this kind of apocalyptic movement of al-Baghdadi, even though posed in religious terms, says, you know, we've got to conquer the our evil enemy, the heretics of the, of the Shia, and put it all in religious terms. Uh, you know, it very quickly is translated into social terms. Yeah, we need to, we need to empower our people. We need to have a voice. We need to have, um, you know, somebody who speaks for us. And almost all of the people I talk with, including some of the most true believers in, in prison, 
they, they, when they're talking about the aspirations of ISIS and what it meant to them, they began with talking about Sunni empowerment and, and the fact that she had te- treated them like dirt. One guy said, you know, um, we, we have a, a, something to fear with uh, about ISIS. He says, you don't know whether they'll kill you or not, but we know the Shia will. <laughs> they just didn't trust them at all. So, uh, and they would talk about the Iraq government as the Shia government, not, you know, the secular government or the Iraq government. So very clearly for them, the support for ISIS meant support for a Sunnistan, a, something would, that would support Sunni Arabs uh, against the Shia Arabs that control the, the country. And then, of course, you have the Kurds, the different ethnic group. Well, they're also Sunnis, but a different ethnic group uh, who are trying to, you know, control the, <laughs> the excesses of the ISIS and Sunni Muslims. They've become very important, actually, in helping to defeat uh, ISIS. Uh, alas, the Americans, uh, you know, abandoned them at the end uh, because of Trump's deal with Turkey, which is just a real tragedy. Um, that's part of the reason why I'll, uh, my um, Qureshi was able to take such a stronghold in Idlib, uh, you know, Idlib is kind of an uncontrollable city anyway. It's a rebel held, but, the, you know, there's a large jihadi presence. And Turkey supposedly is control of that area, but they're not really. And the Kurds have been, who are the most effective fighting force against um, against uh, um, uh, ISIS, have been to some, some extent uh, um, weakened by this deal with Turkey that, that Trump capriciously made over the telephone. I'm not sure he even gave much thought to it. There's no indication he really discussed it with anybody who knew anything about the situation. He just wanted to please Erdogan. And and anyway, that's a whole other story. (laughs) But uh, the the point is that uh, um, these are are movements pursuing the empowerment and not uh, simply for religion. So then... um... When we get to the point of fusing religion and war, so, or religion and violence, what makes that fusion kind of unique? And kind of thinking in the mode of like a poli-sci student, you know, that yeah. we tend to categorize, you know, violence tends to have these distinct categories. You know, here's a war or here's terrorism, here's counterinsurgency. But when when we happen upon the topic of religion and war, you know, what makes that fusion unique? How does that, you know, set the topic apart from other sort of conceptions of organized violence? Well, first of all, religion means different things. And many scholars in religious studies want to abandon the use of the term because it's so fuzzy and and uncertain. Um, I remember as a graduate student, when I was first in India, uh, doing research among in the villages, and I asked people what their religion was, my uh, interpreters turned to me and said, what do you mean by religion? I said, well, you know, <laughs> religion. And they said, well, we don't have any word. We, have, we don't have a word, single word for religion. We have qalm, which means a community, large community. We have pant, which is a fellowship uh, around a, you know, some kind of religious leader. We have uh, dharm, which means religious law. Uh, and we have muslim, which means belief. What do you mean? And I said, well, you know, all, all of those things, religion. <laughs> no, they didn't have any single term. You can, and I've seen this in the Punjab, people who are 
a part of the calm or you know of Sikhism. They wear the Sikh, uh, you know, keep the Sikh signs and the beard and the turban. Uh, but their guru is a Muslim peer, and they go to uh, their punt, their fellowship is a Muslim peer, and their dharm, their, their beliefs are really fundamentally Hindu. You know, <laughs> religion doesn't work the same way in other parts of the world as it does in the European and uh, American West. Uh, but having having said that, what often we think of as religion is religious ideas or religious symbols. Uh, and they can be very important for a community that's defined by religion, uh, which often is what we're really talking about. You know, people like Timothy McVeigh, who didn't seem to have a religious bone in his body. Uh, but, you know, he blew up the Oklahoma City Federal Building to read the Turner Diaries, which is his Bible. You see, it was for Christendom. It was for Christian culture. It was for the Christian tradition that he thought was being eroded. And Anders Breivik, who picked up a theme from Timothy McVeigh in Norway and then attacked a youth camp in, in Norway, uh, killing a great number of, of people, had issued a manifesto with the same idea that he was, again, he didn't, he didn't go to church. He did one part of church religion. But he thought he was protecting Christian dumb. He didn't want Muslims taking over the country. And, and, he, and he titled his manifesto at a date that was resonant with the, the, the siege at the gates of Vienna <laughs> centuries earlier that it kept the Ottoman Empire from taking over Central Europe. And he thought that's what he was doing again. He was doing in, in Norway. He was keeping multiculturalism from taking over Norway, which he thought would lead to the corrosion of Christian culture. And all those people who were parading in, in January 6th and who were, you know, wanted to protect uh, uh, the American values, which to them was white Christian and evangelical Protestant Christian at that, <laughs> male-centered heterosexual <laughs> values, uh, are really uh, describing a certain kind of uh, religious identity and not religious belief or religious symbols. So many of these movements, uh, they're religious in that sense. That is, they're part of identity, uh, uh, social identity. But sometimes they're religious in the symbolic sense uh, when they acquire, particularly in acquiring images of cosmic war. I'm really fascinated with that. I end up writing a whole book about it because in every religious tradition, every movement uh, of, of religious violence or religious related terrorism, uh, I, I, I see this, these images in the background, images of great battle, of great warfare, which are often lifted directly from the scripture. They're the great wars in Deuteronomy, that, in the Hebrew Bible, that, that fuel some of the more violent activists in, Israel, in Judaism and Israel who are killing Palestinians, people, followers of Mayor Kahane. Uh, but there are also the references to war in the Quran, not as many as there are in, in the Hebrew Bible, but many references, um, which then fuel the, the jihad of many Muslim activists. And Christians often are motivated by both by Deuteronomy and by the images of the book of Revelation that talks about you know, cataclysmic violence at the end of times, a great confrontation, and just imagines that we're moving that direction and that precedes the rapture in which the 
then the true souls will be saved in this vision of millenary and evangelical Protestantism. So every religious tradition, even Buddhism, the, you know, the great wars of the Mahavamsa and the, and the Sri Lankan chronicles talk about warfare. Uh, so every religious tradition has these images uh, that it can be appropriated uh, for thinking in terms of grand war uh, that then are applied to the current battles in which their social group, often again defined by religion, is engaged. So religion plays several kinds of roles, both in identity and providing a, a symbolic resource. Because if you're involved in a cosmic war, then you know you never lose because this is God's battle. I talked with the leader of Hamas, uh, both Sheikh Yassin and also Dr. Rantisi. Dr. Rantisi was more the practical head of the movement. And, and I said to Dr. Rantisi, you know, you, you people can't possibly win. It'd be suicide, um, you know, bombing. It, it, it does can terrify people, but it's not going to change the power of the Israeli army. It's not going to sway anyone to the Palestinian side. And he kind of looked at me as if he was talking to a small child. He said, well, not maybe not in this, not, not in my lifetime, perhaps, and maybe not in my children's lifetime, or even in my children's children's lifetime, but in my children's 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 lifetime, we might succeed. He said, because we cannot lose. This is God's war. Well, if you think you're fighting God's war, then temporary battles, you can lose with out really shedding much of a tear because that's just a temporary skirmish and what you think is going to be a grand scenario that will ultimately lead to victory. It also means your own death may just be a transitory thing, particularly if you have a strong belief in afterlife in which you would be rewarded. So the images of cosmic war and, uh, and religious-based violence is can can be potent. That's why I say religion may not be the problem, but it often is problematic because it adds a whole new dimension of absolutism that's very hard to, to negotiate with. Uh, and, and, and once you are in that imagined bubble, it's hard to get out of. Although what I found in this last book on when God steps fighting, you know, people do fall out of it. People, just like falling in love, you fall out of love. Well, you, you can fall into cosmic war and you can fall out of it uh, when things began to be fall apart. I talked with one lady in a refugee camp in uh, near in northern Kurdistan, in northern Iraq. And I said, when, when did you realize that it was over and that the, you know, the, this great battle of ISIS really, uh, really was not going to happen? And she said, when everything started falling apart. And I think what she meant by that, the disorganization that came at the last minutes where people were scrambling for their own protection, where people were throwing off their uniforms if they had them and, and trying to escape any way they could, uh, where they were turning on each other, uh, blaming each other for the weakness uh, in resisting the, the forces that were really much stronger than they. And she saw that as just that kind of chaos is a certain sign that everything was falling apart. <laughs> so cosmic war ends. Uh, maybe not soon enough for many of us, but it does end.
that's interesting. I mean, it almost seems like, you know, religion is is its own kind of alternate reality and it's kind of changing the nature of violence to to this idea of there is no there is no time scale you know it's rooted in symbols but i mean like how does i mean pulling back a bit how does you know how does that change the nature of violence then you know when you begin to bring in this this alternate reality of religion of religiosity of apocalyptic thinking right it's it's an apocalypse but it's it can't be fitted or formed to any sort of human understanding of time yeah i'm glad you used the term alternate reality because that's the phrase i i talk about a lot in my book god at war as seeing war as an alternative reality and religion as an alternative reality and, and the fusion of the two in cosmic war is a very important uh, intellectual construct indeed. Um, so the question is, when you're in that, <clears throat> the question is, when you're in that alternative reality, how do, how do you get out of it? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you can, you can tackle it any which way. I mean, I think that the idea of being in that alternate reality and trying to get out is kind of the the main question nowadays i think um in our previous shows on isis on QAnon, that that question constantly comes up like how do you somebody who is very much a participant in a cosmic war or thinking or you know is waging a cosmic war how do you take them from that apocalyptic mindset and then work them out of out of that respective movement yeah, and the QAnon is a good example. I mean, it fits the, the pattern of these other movements I've been talking about um, perfectly. Uh, it, I, it, if I were redoing the book, if I were redoing Terror in the Mind of God, I would <clears throat> probably begin with QAnon. Uh, and, and January 6th is an example of uh, kind of cosmic war at work in, in an American context. And you may say, oh, well, these people weren't all that religious. Well, what makes you think that <laughs> the Al-Qaeda activists were all that religious or Timothy McVeigh was all that religious? They, they, they battled for a cause that they thought was just, but they wrapped in this image of, you know, of a cosmic battle that just was to- totally engaging. Uh, and if you ever talk with somebody who is totally immersed in this worldview or seen video clips, which are really quite frequent, YouTube clips of of people who uh, go off in rants about, you know, how the election was stolen and how there's a deep state and how there's uh, evil creatures uh, out to get us and just uh, remarkably imaginative kind of conspiracy theories. Uh, And you wonder, how can anybody believe that? But, But once you're in that worldview and reinforced by all those images and of course today's media um, uh, kind of control and the way in which uh, one once information can be siloed and and how uh, how youtube and facebook and and twitter all kind of um, uh, they they provide you with more of the stuff that you seem to like <clears throat> because their goal of course is to get you to, to stay on their on their social media and so you just keep on getting bombarded by more and more of this stuff. And you, you assume, well, that this is the way the world is because all the stuff that you're reading now and everything you get reinforces 
these crazy views of the world. Uh, it just really uh, deeply, <laughs> a, a deeply disturbing uh, kind of development in, in modern communications. But it's no different than what happens even when people are not bombarded by social media, if they're just people in their village start talking with them, with them and everybody in the village starts talking, one of the, the young men in, 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 in India who joined Khalistan told me that the, he was trying to explain why he joined the movement. And it, it was just kind of floundering for exercise, ex, 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 excuses, some, some explanation. And, and finally just said, well, you know, everybody was doing it. it just, it's just what we did. <laughs> and so if, if all of your peers kind of are thinking the same way and they're reinforcing your beliefs, you, it doesn't have to be social media. It could just be the community around you that reinforces a particular image. And then you're off and running. You're in that, that bubble of, of cosmic war. And for him, it all began to decay when things literally fell apart. And people were being killed and the villagers didn't support him. And there's all this fighting. And you can see that it, it really was a fragile and, and corrupt construct of the imagination. And something of that, I think, is already beginning to happen among followers of QAnon, many of whom now become quite disaffected with Donald Trump. Uh, and they, in his um, his use of devices of uh, money raising for his own uh, purpose, and, and his uh, hypocrisy in his statements, and um, so they're beginning to fall away from him. They're beginning to quarrel with each other. Um, we, we'll see whether that leads to a kind of unraveling of the of the worldview. But I think it has to happen to a large extent from inside. Uh, because of those of us who are outside, can't really penetrate that bubble. And anything we say is just, it's going to just bounce off. It's going to be regarded as, oh, you're just saying the, you're just saying the, the words of the, the evil anime. You know, you were kind of, you, you've been, they think we've been brainwashed because it's counter to their vision of the world. And so therefore, they have to have some explanation for it. So you can't argue. Uh, with people who are immersed in this particular worldview. You can love them, uh, particularly if they're members of your own family or, or friends. You can, and what I try to do in, in cases where some of my own family members are supporters of some of these visions, is, is simply talk about other things, family things. Just do try to get away from politics uh, and never argue with their political position. I'd say, well, you know, I, I don't agree with you, but let's not discuss it. I want to know how your, how your children are doing. I, I want to know how, how your health is going. And I, I, I want to know, I, I want to know what, what you've been doing with your life in other ways that, <laughs> that, that make, that, you know, allow you to go through the day from time to time to try to, uh, to try to bring people back into a different kind of reality. I think that's unfortunately about the best we can do. And it's only within the movement itself that serious uh, rupture in the worldview can, can uh, emerge. Uh, and, and it will, uh, invariably will. QAnon will not last forever. It will dissipate just as these other extraordinary visions of cosmic war have dissipated. Uh, we just have to be patient. It's kind of fascinating to me that it almost seems that 
most cosmic wars are kind of doomed to fail, right? I, I can't even think of, like off the top of my head, I can't even think of a situation where an extremist movement has won or has declared victory or has been able to, like, really, like the, the problem is defining victory. If if there is no time scale, there is, you know, everything is rooted in symbols, then what is victory? But, um, you know, our, let's just return to the question, you know, our cosmic war is kind of doomed to fail that we, you know, yeah, let's, it, let's start, it, let's it, start it, there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think in an extreme form, I mean, there is certainly, you saw I'm, the case of the Philippines that I just talked about and the troubles in, um, in Ireland, uh, you know, between the Protestants and, and the, and the Catholics, which again, was not really a religious battle. It was between two different ethnic groups, uh, confrontation over the same territory. Uh, but after the Good Friday Agreement, there were still some of the worst violence happened shortly after it, but it didn't deter people. They were on a mission for peace at that point. And since then, they're still struggling with that peace, but it, but there is a peace. And they, they've managed to build uh, a life together again. Uh, so these are examples of kind of the modification of cosmic war. They may, it, it may very well still be people in people's minds. It may very well, they may very well believe uh, much of this, but as long as they're not trying to kill somebody, then you can, then you can tolerate it. I mean, you don't really care what kind of wacky thing your neighbor believes uh, as long as they're not trying to kill you. Right. I mean, so that's in some cases, the most we can hope for, a end God at war a book with that a kind of realization that war is going to always be with us. It's a, um, it's a temple of a human imagination. It's very, it's very strong, very potent. And it is in part because it is just the counter of ordinary reality, uh, which is based on civil uh, interaction and then trying to modify difference and come to agreement. Uh, and of course, War is just the opposite, where there's, you, you hate your enemy and you try to kill them. Um, and so it becomes the stuff of computer games and of novels and of movies. And you think about a good number of the most successful movies are about war. Almost all of the computer games, at least the ones that attract young teenage boys, uh, are, are about warfare. Battle of one sort or the other. If your urban warfare in the ghetto or great battle, like uh, 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 some of the more recent computer games, uh, and so it, it's they're very strong. There's something there about the human imagination that is drawn to war, <clears throat> and that that I don't think that will leave. But I think. What can happen is the realization that it's not for proper society. It's for our imaginations. And it can be, as it is, a very important part of religion, a very important part of culture, a part of literature. Uh, and, and even the acted out games we play are somewhat warfare, whether it's soccer or football or whatever. Um, but if it's relegated to symbolic and kind of metaphorical uh, activities and doesn't involve physical violence, we're actually killing somebody or trying to kill them, uh, then we, 
we can tolerate. In fact, we rather like it. <laughs> you know, it's a uh, it's part of the amusement of life, and and uh, it, it allows us to go on. And maybe uh, because it's uh, this is the insight of Sigmund Freud many years ago is the symbolic violence can can mitigate against real violence, and, uh, and that may or may not be true. A number of studies trying to prove or disprove it, uh, but nonetheless. Um, to some extent, it, it's a, a good replacement uh, for the real violence that uh, that erupts with with actual war or the carrying out of visions of cosmic war, uh, and maybe that's the most we can hope for. So, it's something that I, I kind of struggle to understand. So, even even if you know, even if we take QAnon and they they fall apart, but at the same time there's evidence to suggest that they are trying to sort of acquire political power. So like thematically, when, when a group engages in cosmic war and part of that cosmic war is creating political power, right? So participating in elections, a school board and, you know, you know, assigning, you know, running for school boards, running for house seats, whatever, like, how do we understand people who consider themselves to be engaged in the cosmic war and have don't necessarily engage in violence, but want to accrue political power because it, I mean, it seems like, well, I guess ISIS tried to build the state, and then, and so that's a form of political power, but I guess we've never seen it happen in a democracy, not in the way that sort of Q adherents kind of a, have been approaching it. Yeah. And this movement towards pauperous, uh, autocracy is a development all over the world right now. It's one of the unhappy features of anti-globalization, a reaction to globalization, but it, it also lies in in parallel with it. I mean, there are at the same time movements for uh, greater understanding and acceptance of multiculturalism and a sense of global citizenship at the same time that there's these tribalistic uh, extremist and autocratic movements often fueled with religion. Uh, that's a part of the political dynamics uh, of our time. Uh, but, and it's a dangerous one and we should be concerned about it. But it, in most cases, I'd say that carefully, certainly not all, uh, in most cases, it, it doesn't end up in actual violence against people. It certainly restricts their freedom, it restricts their freedom of speech. Uh, it leads to uh, a kind of uh, sham democracy of, uh, uh, of cornering off uh, the ability of many people to participate in the public life, which is a, a terrible tragedy, especially for a country like ours, who's so proud of its democratic tradition. It's just a, it's a horrible thing to see this kind of strong development of autocratic popularism. Uh, and yet, I guess what I'm trying to say that it's not quite the same as visions of cosmic war. But one thing, political governing requires some work and it requires a, a certain degree of just day-to-day -day concern about how the electric grid is working and how, you know, how the streets are going to be claimed when it's full of snow and all of the, these very practical considerations. Uh, it's interesting that when Hamas came to power, uh, 
in, in Palestine, at least for a, a, a time, uh, there was much less violent extremists. It was almost as if the leaders were now too busy just with the details of trying to administer the country. Uh, I'm not saying that they did it well, and, and, and I certainly think that their extremist ideology, in the case of Hamas, had, uh, often has gotten in the way of them being able to rule effectively. Uh, but they've tried to rule, and the Islamic State was a state. Um, Mosul, for the people I talked with who had lived there, and I talked with quite a few of them in refugee camps right outside of the city, most of the Sunni uh, Arabs with whom I talked thought that, uh, at least at the first, the beginning, at the first years, that the city was being run fairly well. Uh, for, for one thing, uh, ISIS employed some of the old administrators and leaders that were not allowed to be in power under the Shia government. Uh, and, and they knew what they were doing. They knew how to administer. And they brought in a lot of their compatriots and guys I talked with who were Sunnis uh, were really pleased. And finally, they had jobs you know, and, they, uh, and things were going well. And I said, well, when did they stop going well? I said, well, when ISIS began getting so paranoid, it began turning on its own people. And it began seeing enemies within you know, the Sunni Arab community and began turning on us. And they gave examples, including to the guys I was talking with uh, about how one guy had thrown in jail for several months because he was smoking cigarettes. And the other guy who was found out to be a former policeman and, and they were uh, found out he, he ended up in a, 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 a soccer field in the middle of the night and he realized that they were killing people, that they were just round them up to be killed and he managed to escape. So, I mean, they very quickly discovered the brutality of ISIS. But the point is that uh, at least for a time, uh, when ISIS was trying to govern, it it, it was trying to govern. <laughs> and that that uh, that has a kind of moderating effect. Uh, and this is in, in, in no way to say that these movements, including the supporters of QAnon, are now trying to seek political power, that they're going to do it well, uh, or that they are going to be uh, in, in any way uh, kind of champions of democracy and champions of civil discourse and the things we like and political leaders, quite the opposite. Um, but they, they, it's unlikely that they will be trying to kill people and nor to attack the government, especially if they are now in charge of the government. You know what I mean? So we'll see. I mean, we're facing some uh, very tough times with elections midterm and then the presidential elections in a couple of years. Uh, and they could make a dramatic difference. And then we would by having, be having a quite different conversation, I suspect. <clears throat> so do we, I mean, do we, would, would we automatically consider a group of people who are waging cosmic war to reject the state or destroy it? Because it, it I, I'm really sorry, I keep returning to QAnon because they're, they're just trying to, you know, think about QAnon is so baffling because they they seem to reject this they wage cosmic war they reject the deep state or the state in general but at the same time are trying to gain power and co-opt within, this, it. within it yeah co-opt the yeah. state so <laughs> yeah <laughs> so then 
and, and some of the some of the leaders are you know, most strident rhetoric are elected officials. Exactly. So <laughs> I, when we when we begin to construct a framework of of individuals who wage cosmic war, where do we place the state? Is it are they trying to just do away the, with the state and recreate their own sort of paradise? Co-opt the state? What is how do how do we understand the relationship of a, somebody who wages cosmic war and the state? You know, the state as a set of laws, processes, however you want to define. It. Well, it, it's relationship is different in, in different contexts, uh, but in most cases, at least initially, it's, it seemed to be the enemy because the secular state is at the enemy of of movements like this that are outlawed and and are taking acts of violence in order to try to destroy them. But on the same hand, as you say, uh, in many cases, the goal is to replace the state, to take it over and to become the state. Uh, In the case of uh, the Philippines or the case of uh, Ireland, they were successful and and really very, very successful in in developing a governmental structure that really is quite uh, quite good and, and democratic and fair and and so it's possible that the outcome of these movements can can be a, a positive ones, uh, but there are also cases where they've, uh, they've they've tried to create a very uh, you know in the case of the uh, Iranian Revolution that they created a theocracy. Uh, well, you know, Iran is a state; it's it's is a government. Uh, not everybody in the country is happy with it, um, but it's persisted and uh, at least is keeping all the basic functions of government uh, going. Uh, and from time to time, it's been fairly progressive uh, in, in the kind of, uh, kind of accommodations it makes to the wider society and to international cooperation, uh, as in the, the nuclear peace deal that was for a while forged uh, with European nations in the United States. So um, there's an example of what happens when cosmic war wins, that is when it takes over the state, um, it has to rule and and they carry even decades later, uh, a lot of the characteristics of that cosmic war, the religious language, the fervor, the kind of sense of in and out and we and they and uh, and yet, at the same time, it has to learn to govern. Interesting. So I, I kind of want to switch footing and and look at when God stops fighting. And in the book, you you sort of propose this uh, a few ideas about uh, how cosmic wars end. Um, could we go through, uh, if you don't mind, um, the conditions in which cosmic wars and 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 which one you know how can we as as people in in the space of like de-radicalization and and you know people who are aiming to bring extremists out how can we create those conditions you know how is there you know is the can somebody from the outside create those conditions or is it something that we have to kind of allow to happen on its own naturally well well both um I talk about conditions internal to the movements, things, changes that then causes a collapse of this vision of cosmic war and a loss of faith in the movement. And we mentioned something, some of those in our conversation, infighting, a struggle, a sense of 
that the movement is corrupt, that they've lost the vision of original vision that they had that inspired them. And, and all of these uh, are things that happen within the movement and, and have to happen within the movement. There's, they, there's almost nothing you can do from the outside. I, I know there are efforts at counterterrorism that try to argue with people, let's say, that jihadis are not believing in a true Islam and they bring in a mullah uh, who has good religious credentials to explain that their ideas of jihad are not properly Muslim ideas. And they just laugh at him because they think this is a guy who is, you know, just, you know, a fake that he's been brought in to say these things. And uh, it's not just unconvincing. It really makes him even more convinced to the veracity of their point of view. So you can't argue with them and you can't argue out of them. Uh, so those the internal sense of, of collapse of the vision and the feeling that the movement has gone awry and, and cannot be sustained uh, those things happen to be happen. That has to be the experience of, of those within the movement. At the same time, there are forces outside that make a huge difference also. Uh, and the, the people within the movement are keenly aware of the response of authorities to them. And one of the most common responses of authorities is to, as I've heard it put in government circles, you, you got to fight fire with fire. And if you want to, you know, you have to cut off the head of the serpent if you want to, if you want to kill it. Well, sometimes it's a hydra and it's a many-headed surgeon, serpent and you actually have made things worse. And that's, that's often the case with heavy-handed militant acts. This, is, this certainly, I think, was the mistake of the British. And the British have accepted that in, in the situation in Ireland. When they came hit too strong in trying to uh, hit against the protests of the uh, of the Catholics in Northern Ireland, uh, and and this really created martyrs, and then it created a sense of well, we have to fight. We have to, you know, the British they're not going to listen to us. Peaceful protest doesn't work. We just have to we have to we have to fight fire with fire. <laughs> That's the problem. That uh, fire with fighting fire with fire often just produces more fire. And, and so, so I, I, I think that's the danger of strong militant action from the outside or, or police action. On the other hand, there's a need for clarity to show the limitations of acceptable action. So no response if a movement starts killing people uh, or takes on a belligerent attitude. And if there's no response from the authorities and they're just allowed to do it, well, it's pretty much the case in Syria and, and Iraq, in, in part because these are pretty unstable states, both of them, and they don't have don't have the kind of authoritarian control in, in the areas of western Iraq and eastern Syria that are dominated by Sunni Arabs. And so, so they, they were allowed, these movements were allowed to, to grow. Uh, and, and that was a, that was a big mistake from the authorities also, <laughs> you know, they, People have to, yeah, you can protest, you can say that you want to, but you start killing people, you've gone over the line. And that, that has to be made perfectly clear from the outside, outset and, and responded to strongly. So there's a kind of balance between the amount of force that's appropriate and the amount of force that really is counterproductive. And often it's counterproductive. Of course, Mrs. Gandhi and the Operation Blue Star discovered that 
And when she was persuaded by her generals that all they had to do was invade the Golden Temple and kill Binderwali and everything would be fine. And that turned out to be a disaster that, of course, ended her own life. And, and then there's something else that the um, authorities can provide, and that's hope. And by that mean, I mean to, to give a sense of life outside of the struggle. And this is important in, in some cases for very personal reasons, because many of the people who joined these movements, like say the Khalistani movement, they were 16 years old when they joined it. This is also true of the people I talked with in, uh, who began the struggle as jihadis in, in Iraq. They were just kids. And, and this is all they know. And now they're in their, some cases, they're almost 30. And fighting is all they can do. That's all they've done. And, and so if they're not fighting, what are they going to do? <laughs> you know? uh, so to, to give a vision of what they can do in the Philippines, they have these retraining camps where they try to you know, teach people, uh, you know, car repair and, and plumbing and, uh, you know, accounting and useful things that they can then have to, to, to go out in the world and actually do things with, and but also a, a, a hopeful alternatives in, in terms of the vision of the movement, which is why in the Philippines it was so important to keep alive the idea of a monk support, a monk support or a, an autonomous Muslim state in Mindanao that would be supported by the government. They could enter into a negotiated pact, which they did. And, and that, is, that was very important in the transition moments. And, and when the government sat on that idea for several years and didn't do anything about it, that's where some of the violence began to crop up again, like the horrible attack on the city of Marari in, in, in uh, north of Cotabato City in, in uh, Mindanao. I went to that city and I, I just, it was devastated because they used American air power just to destroy the city to save it because the city had been taken over by ISIS-supported people they were Mindanao Muslim militants, but they claimed to be affiliated with ISIS. I mean, their movements like this, like Boko Haram claims to be affiliated with ISIS. Their movements all over the world that claim to be affiliated with ISIS. The affiliation is really very tenuous. Uh, but, but because of this, there is, the, the, and because the, they took over the city, the control of the city, uh, they, the Philippine government with support of American air power was ruthless in their destruction. Uh, and and that, I think, for a time, created other problems, especially because the negotiated agreement for Banks of War had not been implemented. But Duterte, I think, was smart enough to realize that, or at least his advisors told him, that they, that was part of the problem. And so not too long after, uh, they, the Philippine government did uh, proclaim the... Uh, this this negotiated settlement it authorized its uh, its implementation, and now it is a reality and a functioning reality. So the that if it was something like that, uh, you know, in for the Sunnis in Syria and Iraq, that would make a huge difference. Or if they simply change the constitution in a way that would allow greater re representation uh, and control over some share of, of the oil money of all of them. There are very practical grievances that Sunnis have in, in Iraq and also Sunnis, different grievances that Sunnis have in, have in Syria. A response to that in, in some way, I think would greatly undercut 
the resurgence of ISIS, which we see right now, uh, because they they do give an alternative. They give, they an alternative to fighting. They show that there are other ways to a, achieve these ends. Uh, so the governments do have a very positive role to play, and not in undermining the movements, but but showing individuals in the movements that there uh, there is an, uh, there are other other options, and that there is ways of achieving their goals that don't involve involve violence. I think, I think that's really interesting because I think in our conversations about Q, that is with people who are like our friend Shannon, who is very much in conversation with extremists to bring them out, uh, our friend Sarah, and it, it just seems like the hardest thing, the hardest kind of leap is creating that alternate vision and, and sort of that hope. Because I think, yeah. especially with Q, it's like, uh, one of the most heartbreaking things is is going on Reddit and kind of reading about people who struggle uh, with Q uh, family members who are believers in QAnon, and it's just yeah. like it just takes so much energy to convey hope or to create an alternate vision. Like I, I think in one in one thread, it was like they basically had to shut off the internet and be like yeah. like start conversing with them normally instead of like within the the framework of conspiracy and cosmic struggle but that's very I, important i mean they have to know you don't agree with them mm-hmm. uh but but just avoiding arguing with them because that, that's not an argument they're, you're going to win exactly so i my question is you know on the individual level so not not at the state level but on the individual person to person level how do we how, how do we get better at conveying alternate visions of life and, and conveying hope, especially, you know, when, when dealing with, you know, QAnon believers, when, you know, in, in a more extreme interpretation, like Christian identity believers or neo-Nazis, how do we, on that individual level, sort of, you know, become better peacemakers and better sort of, uh, I guess enders a cosmic war, but that's not really a good phrase. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it, it, it can take a lot of time and energy. And usually you're not going to be willing to invest that time and energy unless it's a member of the family to whom you're quite close or a friend to whom you have been once been quite close. Uh, and that's that's understandable. Um but then the challenge is with that individual, if you're willing to take the time and energy to try to get them to explain what it is behind their concerns, that is to try to understand what what really upsets them. You know, uh, I mean, they'll, they'll say, "Oh, it's because you know, deep state is out to." You know, okay, okay. Well, what 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 does how does that affect you? What what is it? about that that you find troubling and maybe in that way get some indication of aspects of their own life that they they feel is uh, is threatened and and then you are able to get a sense of a better sense of what animates them and a better sense of how whether it is possible for you to you know provide some kind of solace or some kind of alternative way of thinking that meets those concerns. But 
but you have to take the time to do that. And, and uh, I have to admit it's challenging. Uh, uh, and I, I count myself among it. I have, own, old, I have some own, my own relatives who are, you know, a, a cousin who is very much wrapped up in this rhetoric. And I, I try to be as reasonable with her as possible. And it's, I have to admit it's difficult. And I have to admit, uh, since I'm securely some distance from her, I, you know, I often just don't take the trouble to <laughs> have to have to discuss with her or, or meet with her. My my own brother, uh, who's, who's dead now, but uh, uh, who for a long time was very close to this way of thinking, and I would try very hard to understand him because how how could we both be in the same family and come out of the out of the same womb and have such different perspectives on the world. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's a challenge. It's, and it's one worth taking up, but I have, I have to admit it's, it, it's draining. It's difficult. Uh, and it may not be consequential. We may, we may not find anything that we can do about it, but on the other hand, we might. And I guess that's why it's worth the effort. No, it, it definitely is. I just, it, it's just a theme that keeps coming up, like across, you know, every every sh- show we've done on ISIS or, you know, white supremacy. It is that's the big theme that seems to yeah. be coming up. It's, sure. it, you know, you it's not a problem that you can just you know, you know, kill your way through or shoot your way through or rest your way through. It is kind of this very deep rooted. <laughs> And kind of the more that we kind of peel the onion, so-called onion, it just gets worse and worse. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it, 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 it's kind of, it's, it's very interesting that you're, you're kind of saying the same thing that a lot of our other guests have. It's really this kind of long-term engagement and kind of, it requires a lot of energy and a lot of time, but hopefully uh, the end product is, is, you know, getting somebody out of that way of thinking. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I think we've, we've kind of hit on all the topics that I, I wanted to discuss um, as kind of our tradition. Uh, we always give the guests the last word. So the, the ability to leave, leave us with something to think about or a research thread to look at or just parting words for us to kind of chew on and to, to kind of really just get us thinking, so to speak. <laughs> Yeah, well, the latest two books are God at War and When God Stops Fighting, um, which are kind of follow-ups on Terror in the Mind of God, the book that you mentioned earlier. Uh, all of uh, attempts that I am trying to do what I'm still trying to do, and that is make sense of, make sense of the world around me. Um, you know, I'm a social scientist, but uh, for me, social scientists has always been just a journey of discovery of trying to make sense of those things that seem senseless, those things that seem to, you know, prick at you that just don't fit into the kind of reasonable world that you would like to have. Uh, and, and that's what got me on this journey of trying to understand religious. That's how an old Gandhian pacifist like myself uh, got engaged in the study of religious violence uh, to, to try to understand why and why now? And I'm still asking those questions. Uh, there, there's still 
good questions to ask. I'm not sure I've found out everything, but I've tried. And I'm so happy I can share it with people in the books that I've written and in discussions like this today. And I thank you for the conversation. Of course. So uh, with that, uh, thank you so much. That was my guest, Mark Jurgensmeyer, Professor Jurgensmeyer, the, the author of Terror in the Mind of God, God at War, and When God Stops Fighting. Go. Uh, all three books are absolutely worth your while if you're in the space of studying extremism, whether it's religion or secular, religious or secular. Just amazing, amazing work. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. My pleasure.